From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Happy New Year and welcome back to our show. We're so glad to have you with us as we continue to fight for civil rights and civil liberties in 2024. Last year, states passed a record number of bills restricting healthcare, athletics, public accommodations, expression, and education materials for trans people, trans kids more specifically. 23 saw the highest number of bills introduced in state legislatures attacking LGBTQ rights. 500 bills have been proposed, with 75 of them becoming law. And the trans community and its allies have been doing all they can to fight the injustice. With the turn of a new year, the situation continues to grow dire. Laws threatening access to gender-affirming care went into effect in several states on January 1st. The ACLU is calling on the Supreme Court to block a Tennessee law banning gender-affirming medical care for trans people under 18, and to reject a case concerning a transgender student's access to restroom facilities that correspond with gender identity at an Indiana school. As this unprecedented surge in attacks on the trans community rages on, we need to stay vigilant in watching what's happening and fighting back. Here to update us on what's going on and what's to come is Chase Strangio, the ACLU's Deputy Director for Trans Justice with the LGBT and HIV Project. Chase, welcome back to At Liberty. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kendall. It's good to be here. I wish we had you on a different conversation because we keep coming back to this onslaught and... I love speaking to you, but we need to do it on better terms, I think, next time. Yes, I'm ready for the for the conversation about our epic victories. Exactly. I mean, there are a few victories that we can talk about in this conversation, but I agree. So I want to start with the latest. We're only a few days into the new year, and yet we're already contending with so much. Beginning with Louisiana, where as of January 1st, a law banning gender-affirming health care for transgender minors has gone into effect. The legislature passed the bill last summer, overriding a veto by the outgoing governor. It also failed by a small margin to overturn vetoes on two other bills, restricting the discussion of gender and sexuality in public school classrooms and requiring school employees to use names and pronouns of students on their birth certificates. What do you make of the situation in Louisiana? Yeah, I mean, as we as we start 2024, I think it's important to take stock of all that happened in 2023. So what, what are we starting this year with? And the reality is that 80 bills went into law that it, in one way or another targeted LGBTQ people, mostly trans people, and like you said, mostly young people. Uh, and so we went from a situation where in the beginning of 2021, zero states banned evidence-based gender-affirming medical care for minors. Now we're in a situation where 22 states are banning this treatment. So, so we're, in essence, have gone from none of the country to almost half of the country, which means that access to this care has shrunk so dramatically, pushing families out of their home states, preventing people from accessing the care that they need. And so Louisiana becomes yet another care center in the South and Midwest that no longer can treat patients. And I do want to say that we're in the middle of yet another fight because right before the end of the year, uh, Ohio passed a ban on gender-affirming care uh, for minors. And it was basically one of the last 
last Midwest states to continue to provide care through some uh, major hospital centers. And Republican Governor Mike DeWine vetoed the bill, um, and in essence, saying similar to what other governors have said when they vetoed the bill that this is an this is government overreach, I, you know, interfering with the decisions of families and doctors um, in unprecedented ways, which is precisely what this is. And in response to Dewine's veto, we had every major uh, Republican candidate for president speaking out targeting DeWine, targeting this care, um, distorting the nature of the evidence base and the reality of what this care means. So. You know, we're already just days into uh, the 2024 year, the 2024 legislative sessions, and you have a legislature acting in unprecedented manners, coming back into session early just to try to overturn a veto. What do you make of this trend that we're seeing of of governors vetoing these bills and their legislatures firing back um, and overriding them? Because that's it's not just Ohio that we've seen that attempt play out. Yeah, I mean, the very first bill that passed, which was in Arkansas in 2021, um, had, uh, uh, you know, a supermajority support in both chambers, unfortunately, despite the fact that at that time it was completely unprecedented. And and Governor uh, Asa Hutchinson, former Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, vetoed the the piece of legislation. And he had signed other anti-trans bills um, and had said, in essence, this is a bridge, bridge too far. This is going to hurt kids. This is taking the decision away from the people who know and love their kids the most, their parents, um, which is in essence what DeWine said. And they're both Republicans. And we had Andy Bashir um, in Kentucky. We had um, the governors of uh, Louisiana, of Utah in the past, of Indiana. And, and, and you know, the pressure increases on um, these politicians. And then you have their legislatures overriding them um, in every one of these uh, circumstances. And so at the end of the day, you can see how, you know, this has become a centerpiece of a national discourse that is so untethered, not only from the fact and the evidence, but also from what you would think of as in what these politicians thought of as traditional conservative values. Um, You know, it's an interference with the decision-making of parents. It's an interference uh, with the family. Uh, It is a disruption of the uh, agreement among the adolescent, their parents, and um, their medical providers and the entirety of the medical establishment. And and do you think it's that because governors are tasked with governing a an entire state that they're just not ready to kind of go to the extremes that legislatures are more apt to pursue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of different things. Um, I think when you look at a governor, they're differently situated in terms of what are their threats um, to being ousted. We know, obviously, when you have a, a, you know, state-level politicians who are campaigning basically every year and threatened with primaries from the right, they're more, uh, you know, they're more vulnerable to a certain type of political attack, um, especially when you have outgoing governors who are just looking at the well-being of their constituents and maybe not future political ambitions, that they're genuinely concerned about, well, what what does this mean for, you know, Ohioans? What does this mean for Arkansans? Um, What does it mean for this small subset of people who are are actually affected by this? Not everyone else, because the reality is that the medical decision-making of a family does not impact anyone but that family. And and so I think that you can see this, uh, you know, the real concern and struggle and compassion when anyone actually looks at the facts and the evidence. And sometimes that's governors, sometimes that's courts, um, uh, but unfortunately, rarely does that seem to be legislatures. 
Yeah, I, I emphasize that or kind of pause there because I want to talk about the fact that trans rights have become a political pawn or a political weapon in in so many ways. And and we'll get into that as we look to the presidential election in 2024. I want to talk about a victory of sorts. West Virginia had its own gender-affirming care restrictions go into effect at the start of the year, but in response to activists organizing, the state Senate carved out exceptions to the law, including allowing minors to receive gender-affirming care with parental consent if the child is at risk for self-harm or suicide or has been diagnosed with gender dysphoria by two or more providers. Trans advocates um, and us at the ACLU have welcomed these modifications, but noted that many trans youth will still be unable to jump through the necessary hoops to access care. Is this the new world that we're living in that we are excited about every opportunity we have to to pry open access? It's It feels very similar to what we're experiencing in the repro space. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the progression here, it looks exactly like the, you know, the increase in trap laws, the targeted regulation of abortion providers that, you know, were sort of slowly eroding access um, leading up to Dobbs and the complete overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. And so things become more and more prohibitive leading up to categorical bans. In the context of the gender affirming care for minors, we sort of started with a bunch of categorical bans. It was very, very quickly that we went from access to literally no access, at least for the, the group of minors that um, were being targeted with these first sets of prohibitions. And I think we know that they will come for care for adults next. Um, and, but given that we know we're in this uphill battle, um, it's important to do whatever we can to, to, to keep care. And, and, and the other thing to keep in mind is the baseline is bad. We're talking about even if even before any of these restrictions ha- you know, were, were implemented, before any ban was ever introduced, access to gender affirming care for everyone, adults and minors, is severely constrained. And, you know, I'm only 41 years old. I was not able to access a lot of care for much of my life at all. Um, And so thinking about how, you know, we have long fought just to have even the most basic access. And now we're in a situation where the retrenchment is so significant and we're trying to just eke out what we can in order to preserve care. So what West Virginia did is, uh, you know, is is a far cry from a category Categorical ban, and in that sense, something to celebrate. We know that people can continue to get care in West Virginia, which is why there hasn't been litigation there. Um, and at least with respect to what lawmakers claim their concerns are, with respect to things like, uh, you know, overprescription of medication, uh, things like uh, not having adequate mental health diagnosis before providing care, which again we think is distorted and overblown. The reality is, is if those are real concerns. You don't ban treatment, just as when there was concerns about opiate (laughs) overprescription. States didn't ban opiates. They changed the way in which they were regulated. Um, And there's lots of examples of that in medicine. If there are actual concerns about how any type of medicine is being provided, you use different regulatory systems in order to deal with that. And so at least you can say, well, this is a little bit closer to what would uh, approximate how medical care is dealt with. That said, it is still singling out gender-affirming medical care with no real basis. We just are in a situation where I personally, you know, will take any victory I can get. It's a good, it's a good point. And I think it's also important to note that it feels like a shift, right? Given the landscape that we're operating in right now, we're 
excited about what we see in West Virginia. And that's important to note. Um, I want to move out of state legislatures and talk about the ACLU of Indiana. Uh, They recently filed an opposition brief as the Supreme Court considers whether to take a case ordering an Indiana school district to allow a transgender boy to use facilities that align with his gender identity. Can you explain how this case got to the attention of the Supreme Court and what are we saying in opposition? Yeah, so, you know, we we have been um, fighting for trans students, you know, for, for a long time. And, and that has looked different ways depending on the nature of the political attacks um, in, in any given moment. And so for the last 10 years, one of the ways that trans young people have been targeted has been through restrictions on their ability to use restrooms that align with who they are uh, in schools. And in Indiana, this case has looked like other cases that we've brought where a student was excluded just because they're trans. And the courts said, you no, know, that violates Title IX, um, mm-hmm. which is the federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in schools, and it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So the two lower courts, the District Court and the Court of Appeals, um, affirmed the right of the trans young person to access restrooms that aligned with who he is. Uh, and the school district has asked the Supreme Court to take the case, overturn the lower court precedent, and in essence issue a, a, a nationwide decision that that would say federal law, both statutory law, Title IX, and the Constitution allow schools to exclude trans students. Um, and this would be a huge shift in the nature of, you know, most legal precedent in the country. It would disrupt the ability of, of trans students to continue to challenge restrictive policies. I think an important note is it wouldn't require schools to discriminate. So, so this is a question of would schools be allowed to? Um, but we know there are lots of schools that do want to discriminate. And so get, getting the green light from the Supreme Court um, and in such a ter- interpretation of federal statutory and constitutional law um, is it is a terrifying prospect. We're asking the court not to take the case. We won below. We think that was the right decision. We don't think this is the case that makes sense for the court uh, uh, to take for, for several reasons, one of which is the case concerned the young person's experience in middle school, and he's no longer in middle school. He's at a high school that allows trans students um, to, to use the restroom and locker room that match uh, who they are, although restrooms are the only thing at issue in, in, in the case. And so there's no reason for the Supreme Court to weigh in on a settled legal matter. Um, and in terms of the public, the other thing we're, we're sort of focusing on here is, look, we've moved on as a country. This is so nice. This is so 2016. Like the petition from the school district is like, if the Supreme Court doesn't weigh in, this chaos will be allowed to continue. It's like, what what chaos? I think the younger generation is clear. Like, this is not an issue. Yeah. I mean, I literally have written down this is so old. Like, why are we resurfacing this? This is, I thought we were past this. And I think people at home listening, well, probably probably had that same reaction when we when we started to talk about it. I want to talk about Tennessee, which I think is a really big deal. Uh, so as many of these different gender-affirming care bans get challenged in court, we f- have filed an appeal asking the Supreme Court to review a lower court's ruling and block a Tennessee law banning gender-affirming medical care for trans people under 18. So I want to talk about why we're doing this, um, because I think at first glance, you could wonder, oh, no, the Supreme Court, it's not exactly a friendly bunch at the moment. They've done some gnarly things with abortion and affirmative action, putting 
trans healthcare before the Supreme Court? Is that risky? It will impact the whole country. What led up to us filing this appeal? And why do we see this as the right step? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I share in everyone's anxiety about any case that goes to the, that potentially goes to the Supreme Court. Um, that's true of the court we have now. That's been true in my mind of every version of the Supreme Court. It's a it's an institution um, that is not always positioned to enact uh, justice related outcomes um, that disrupt the status quo and the status quo being that which sustains power for those who have it. And, and so I think we should always be on high alert, sort of how did we get to where we are here and why are we asking the court uh, to take it? And, and it being, um, this is a case that we brought uh, after Tennessee passed this ban, um, like uh, over 20 other states, uh, that bans the only evidence-based medical interventions for gender dysphoria in minors. Um, Tennessee is a huge care center in the South. Um, it has Vanderbilt Medical Center and other um, hospitals and providers that treat a lot of people, not just in Tennessee, but across the South. We had a great decision from the district court uh, blocking the law from going into effect. In essence, uh, saying that looking at the evidence, it is clear uh, that Tennessee is not justified in singling out this treatment for prohibition. Uh, all of the critiques raised about this medical care, whether it's the fact that there are side effects, whether it's the fact that some people, a very small percentage, regret the treatment, whether it's the fact that uh, you know, it could have, uh, you know, certain impacts that can't be undone later in life. None of those things are unique to this treatment. Um, and, and, and all of those things are overstated in uh, the state's justifications. And the court said, no, this is not constitutional. It violates the Equal Protection Clause, and it violates the fundamental rights of parents to direct the medical care of their minor children. Unfortunately, the state has been very aggressive. They sought a stay from the appeals court immediately and were successful. Um, the appeals court, you know, let the law go into effect. And then on the merits of the appeal, upholding uh, the Tennessee legislature's ban on care, um, doing so by, in essence, not looking at the evidence, claiming that it could just defer to the legislature, which we think was um, an error that is significant. And so, the reason why we're asking the Supreme Court, I would say, um, you know, is at least twofold. But the central ones are, first, that we're in a situation where so much of the country is, is banning this care. I think it's likely that more will, just given the trend in the law, and they all rely on each other, that we could be in a situation where we're, we've just lost in all of the appellate courts, or at least in some subset of, of them, that has greenlit discrimination in such a significant part of the, the country that if we, do, if we do nothing, we've accepted defeat. We've accepted defeat in such a way that prevents people in at least Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky from accessing medical care. Um, and then that could spread to other states. And so that's one reason. We move forward in the demands for justice. We move forward in the demand to get this right, even if we don't have full faith in the legal entities that are charged with making these decisions. And then the second uh, reason is that it's so egregiously wrong how they decided. Um, and that it will have an impact not just on future cases on this topic in the circuit, but in the other circuits that have ruled similarly, 
Um, but on other issues, on access to contraception, maybe, on access, uh, you know, to gender-affirming care for adults, on other forms of discrimination against trans people, on uh, other forms of discrimination based on sex against anyone, mm-hmm. uh, cis people, heterosexual people, cis gay people. We, you know, we we need to fix the errors in the law. We can't just accept this t- this type of catastrophically wrong ruling. And so, you know, you look at the, the, the costs and benefits, you understand that every possible set of choices um, has risks. And, and, and we think that this is so urgent, um, that the cost of doing nothing is so significant um, that, that we were asking the Supreme Court uh, to take the case, to review the case, um, and ultimately to overturn the decision from, in this case, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. When do we expect to hear from the Supreme Court? So right now, we we filed our petition and the opposition will come in in the beginning of February. And so it will be fully briefed at the sort of, at, at the, the cert stage, the stage at which you're asking the court to review. And it will be conferenced sometime in, in March. Um, and so at, we can, you know, anticipate the we don't know. The court can sit on a petition for a very long time. But, you know, the spring would be the most likely, spring, early summer would be the most likely time that we would hear whether they're going to take it. Um, and then if they do, it would likely be scheduled for argument in the fall with a decision by June of 25. Yeah. Well, it's really big news, and I am glad that we're working on it at the ACLU. I'm glad that we're a part of this. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you uh, ticking through the cost-benefit analysis of it all. One question I had, and I guess, you know, I'm thinking people at home might be wondering this as well. You know, we did have a major victory in Arkansas last I, I, what the victory was in June, announced in June with the case uh-huh. Brandt versus Rutledge, in which a federal judge overturned the state's ban on gender affirming care for trans youth. I think when that victory came out, I imagined that such a win would generate momentum and we'd see a deterrence effect happen. It doesn't really seem like that's the case, though. I mean, Tennessee and Arkansas touch, you know, they are close. <laughs> I know each state is an individual, but would you have imagined the the Brandt victory to have more of an impact elsewhere? You know, in some sense it did. And so so sort of giving giving a chronology, you know, we we've, we we got our first victory in Brandt in July of 21. And so we had that precedent um, that that was the first district court to even consider one of these laws to look at the evidence and say, no, the state is not cannot justify this type of intrusion. Um, and then the next state was Alabama. And similarly, relying on the decision in Brand, it was, you know, the, the district court. And again, it's the district courts that look at the facts. And so every time a court looks at the facts, truly, they say, no, this, the, you know, the, that these laws aren't justified. So, so there was those two. And then 2023 happens and we had gone to trial. So, so Arkansas was the first preliminary injunction, but we ultimately took the case to trial. We put on 
you know, weeks of, of, of testimony on both sides. Um, and so the judge issued a, a final ruling blocking the law, taking into consideration um, the, the, the actual testimony live on the stand of the clients and of the witness mm-hmm. experts on both sides. Um, and that was the decision that said, permanently, we are blocking this law. And around that time, we also got decisions from district courts blocking laws in Indiana, in Georgia, in Florida, in Kentucky, in Tennessee. So the district courts at that time were unanimous. And they were looking and saying, look, these do not hold up. And so there was all of this momentum going into the end of June. And then the Sixth Circuit um, which is the appeals court, which was considering the stay motion. So these were these are very rushed, rushed motions on the Tennessee and Kentucky bans, which had been blocked by district courts. And that's when things turned. And that's because we're in an appellate court that's further away from the facts. That's uh, what we think of distorting the legal standard and allowing this type of deference to the legislature to... to um, to be adopted. And it's it's not unlike what we saw in Dobbs. It's not unlike- I was going to say, is that something you would expect? Yes. And this, I mean, I think for, for several reasons. It's one, if we think about the federal judiciary, it gets more and more conservative as you go up um, in many ways. And in, in part, there's fewer judges and then justices. And so it's a numbers game. And then also how we, we look at it and which circuits we're in. Um, but, but I also think that you can sort of see- the strategy um, from, you know, more conservative, less civil rights oriented, for lack of a better word, judges and justices, this is what happened in Dobbs. The court says there is no heightened protection um, for, in you know, in this context, abortion, in the context of Dobbs. And so we're going to defer to the legislature. They get to have broad discretion, even if it's, you know, all it has to be is rational uh, and, you know, query rather that these things are, but it's a very deferential standard. And that's what the courts are trying to do. And that's what ultimately our appeals court in the Tennessee and Kentucky cases did was say, no, we're just going to defer, which is a huge problem if you want to think about our judiciary as a, ch- as a check on <laughs> legislative uh, actions discriminating against minority and minoritized groups in this country. The public discourse continues to feed the misinformation that we see legislatively. And we needed that check um, from the judiciary. And now we're no longer seeing that, which means we as the public have to use our power to shift the public discourse if we're going to get to a place where we have any check on the, you know, sort of the majoritarian will to target groups of people that are underrepresented politically. Chase, you just teed me up so perfectly. I mean, first off, just thank you for entertaining um, my curiosity there because it did seem like we were winning and then we were not winning. <laughs> it just seemed like a, a really concerning shift um, in the midst of, I think, the celebration that we were having around the Brandt decision. I want to talk about the public narrative, about this idea that it now really rests on the people at home to to shift the conversation. Um, you know, I think we often talk about how the courts like to stay in lockstep with the the public and what is happening in culture and society. And there is a huge battle for the attention and the hearts and minds of people at home um, when it comes to this issue. And we are seeing that in 
the rhetoric that's coming from conservatives, not only, but predominantly. On its face, the campaign against the trans community and against gender-affirming health care specifically contributes to this broader project of restricting self-determination. And obviously, it's specifically targeting trans youth and in some cases, trans adults. But I'm, I'm wondering about this broad ripple effect. And I know that we've talked about this before, but I think it's like important to remind people that this isn't just about a specific person or a specific case or a specific... I mean, this is about all of us in, in a lot of ways. If we ban gender-affirming care, what are the consequences that will follow and how will this impact and ripple out to other matters relating to trans justice and bodily autonomy? Yeah, I mean, I so, so just as like a big picture way of thinking about law I, and the work that, that I do and the work that we do at the ACLU, I've always been of the view that it's, it's always a contested battle over cultural discourse um, as much, if not more, than it is over legal arguments. And, and, and if we look at any number of contexts, you can see that play out. Um, and the, the most obvious is the context of, of, of marriage for same-sex couples in which, you know, I grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s. I went to college in the early 2000s. For most of my life, gay people getting married was unimaginable. And there, you know, New York State, Washington State, progressive states were not, were, were you know, were ruling against us in, in court. Um, and we were losing in the ballot, at, also in progressive places. So it was, a uh, we were losing everywhere reality up until, you know, the mid-2000s. And then in a matter of 10 years, it shifts. And not, we shifted nothing about our legal arguments. What shifted in those 10 years was how the culture was experiencing gay people through mm -hmm. pop culture, through other cultural inputs, through art, through media. Um, and that is what ultimately shifted the way in which courts decided cases involving marriage for same-sex couples. And now if you ask people if they support marriage equality, they'd be like, yes, I always did. When they definitely didn't always. It was they hugely didn't. not what people That's did. It's revisionist I mean, history. Yeah, it's a revisionist history because of such shifts in culture and, and, and cultural discourse. And that, it, you know, it's so important to give people cultural context because the other thing that happens in every moment is the people who are set on undermining a group of people's rights are very good at exceptionalizing the group. And what I mean by that is, you know, they'll say, oh, you may, it's not the same as gay marriage because trans people disrupt X. And the reality is, is every single thing we hear about trans people, we heard about gay people not that long ago. And so in some cases, right. we still hear about it, you know, but when you hear it in its a contextual, a historical moment, the way in which it's so effectively weaponized by our opponents is, no, 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 this is much more serious than anything you've ever heard before. And part of why that's successful is we be, because of the historical amnesia that we have collectively. Um, and so I think first and foremost, we have to level set about how these things happen and recognize the way in which they're methodically traced through history. Um, battles over bathrooms. This is something that I talk about all the time. Every civil rights contest has it in one way or another concerned bathrooms. And one of the reasons why that is because in the public restroom, you are forced to be around people who are different from you in the way that you've organized your life. And that could be that you, you know, the, the racial integration of bathrooms, that could be around disabled people using bathrooms, that could be around care, parental caretaking and other caretaking in bathrooms, 
that could be in menstrual products in bathrooms, that could be around women having access to bathrooms at all, um, because lots of spaces were historically just for men. And so this is not about bathrooms. This is about how do we organize our public life and who gets to be a part of it. People get caught up with, well, I mean, I don't know. I want my kid to go to the bathroom next to someone who's, like, what are we talking about? Like, you want your kid to go to the bathroom and be safe and get out of the bathroom. And the thing that's going to make them unsafe is if we continue to set up norms in society that we police people out of public space and we surveil them. And, and so there's that piece of it that we have to situate everything within its historical context and within the agenda of those who are trying uh, to derail people's um, rights, their bodily autonomy, and their demands for, for justice. And, and so that's, that's sort of part one. In terms of part two, like what's at stake? What's at stake is you know, everyone's bodily autonomy. How much is the government going to be allowed to intrude upon our ability to make choices for ourselves, our children, um, and the people and communities that we care about? Because if we allow the government to come in and say, no, we don't like this healthcare, we're going to ban it, then that's a big problem for everyone. We are at a crossroads of urgency because everything is getting more and more severe. We're not just restricting the ability to access healthcare. We're being told what you can teach in school. We are being told how you can talk about uh, yourself, um, not just in the school environment, but in others as as well. And there are very, very well-funded and strategic um, groups and individuals who are trying uh, to create a discourse around so many things that make people and communities seem like a threat and then use the government to target them. And it's all the same people who are doing these things and trying to manipulate uh, everyone into this fear-based reaction to suppress people's ability um, to speak truthful uh, histories, to tell truthful stories, and to speak and embody their own truthful existence. I mean, they're fully admitting it. It's not a secret. Christopher Rufo, a man who's literally behind the entire effort across the country to ban books, to censor education, to get schools to get rid of their DEI programs, to levy attacks, to try to put pressure to oust the you know most recent black president of and first black president of Harvard University, who he led a crusade against and admitted to doing so. Like all of this is actually very clear. And it's surprising to me that I think it's not getting as much attention as it should. And I I fear how many people are falling to this rhetoric. It does seem like a narrative battle here. And I wonder, you know, one of the things that strikes me is the real disconnect between what I see as almost two islands, really, that's very generational, right? We have a group of people who are falling to this levied concern about oh, parents' rights and what is my child going to see in their school or going to witness. And then on the other side, you have a generation of young people who are sharing their stories very clearly, very creatively, very openly on social media platforms who almost are projecting completely the opposite. They're projecting freedom and happiness and self-determination and all the like good things about being human. And one thing that struck me is that 
the named plaintiff in the case of Brandt versus Rutledge, Dylan Brandt, a high schooler in Arkansas, um, was just, you know, part of the Time 100, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year, and give a brilliant speech and is, is sharing that he just had top surgery and how amazing it is to be him on, on TikTok, right? And I'm wondering if, if you think that the solution is that we need, we need more Dylan Brandt's sharing his story to kind of quell the other the other camp. What do you make of these parties? Because it does seem generational and it does seem like we do have a chance to win if we if we give kids the mic, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so so I I do I do feel that very strongly. I think in general we uh don't give young people enough agency to speak about their experiences, to speak about the world. Um, that even the very idea of uh, overly controlling classroom curricula um, is about, you know, who's getting to decide what young people can learn about, how much uh, difference they can and should be exposed to, even that we we know that people benefit from learning more, having access to more, um, having access to people who are different from themselves. Uh, and so I think there's so much about a fear that every generation, you know, that older generations have about young people being more and more comfortable um, not only with themselves, but with the world around them and those who are different from themselves. Um, and I think ultimately that is a grave threat to power as people understand their own grasp on power. And in many cases, their own grasp is, is, is attenuated and they're holding on to an illusory sense of power when such a few have so much power over um, so many. I think that when it comes to you know, the Dylans and the way in which, um, you know, the more joy people express, the more people want to take it away. And I, I think Jillian, Jillian Brandstetter, who works here, often says, you know, they're, they're not so fixated on banning gender-affirming care because it's not working. They're fixated on banning gender-affirming care because it is working. And the, the point being that it's not making people worse, it's making them better. And joy in your body, as in, in your self-actualization, is actually the thing they're most scared of. Because, And I think that's for two reasons. One, so many people have never allowed themselves to imagine what joy they could find if they didn't just abide by what was told to them. So it is this deep sense of personal threat. Um, and in in this deeply like sort of emotional psychological level. Um, and then, you know, if, if people are happy and full and free, then they are going to be able to demand more. They're going to be able to fight more. And that is another existential threat to the status quo. Um, and so I think that if you think about the, the efforts, why we see such voter suppression efforts, why we see such efforts to restrict access to abortion, why we see such efforts to restrict access uh, to gender affirming care, it's because though all of those things that if you have control over your body and control over your mind and your ability to be around and organize with people different from yourselves, then we are going to demand a different world, a world that um, some people don't want to see, but the world that we know we all we deserve. And, and so I think that's a lot of, of what's at, at play here. And, and, and so I think we have to be better. We have to be more vigilant. And we have to remember that when we're told to fear something, it's usually because that thing has the potential to be disruptive in the most transformative sense. And that's what we should be fighting for, not fighting against. Yeah, it, it demands a certain level of like of literacy, if you will, to, to actually be paying attention to the th these things. And 
and the forces behind them, right? And the narratives that are being fed to you. And it's not that surprising that people are t- trying to attack educational institutions because how, where do we learn how to question the world and how to take in information and suss out what is what is true and what is false? Yeah, it's it's really scary that it's working so well. As we wrap up here, I want to talk about 2024. Um, as you mentioned at the very top of this conversation, we've had Republican candidates for president talk about trans rights in America. What do you think we're going to see as we continue to get closer to the election? Do you imagine that trans rights are going to be used to stoke the political base of a certain party? I mean, what we're seeing so far, at least, is an escalation of, of, of rhetoric, at least among the people running for president. Um, and then, you know, I think it remains to be seen how that continues to morph as we get closer and closer to November. Uh, I do think that we have seen it very much be a centerpiece of state legislative attacks. Um, and that doesn't always translate to, uh, you know, pre- presidential and congressional races. In, but we know that this is definitely something that's in the ether uh, in November Um, of 2022, uh, during the midterms, there was an emphasis on using anti-trans rhetoric to try to drive out voters in Michigan in particular. It was hugely unsuccessful in terms of the ultimate outcomes of those races. Um, I think if you look at actual ballot-based outcomes and this rhetoric, it is not successful for those who tried to utilize it, but that doesn't necessarily stop people. And we're already seeing um, somewhat of a battle among the Republican presidential candidates in terms of who can bring up the most anti-trans rhetoric. And that was certainly true after the DeWine veto in Ohio. Every single candidate came out, and this was very much not the case. Um, In the 2016 election, it was not as much at the forefront in terms of the way in which the rhetoric was deployed. And now we're in a situation where in the lead up to the the primaries that you're seeing it be at the center, at the fore. But, you know, I think every four years you see the demonization of groups as part of election-based tactics. Again, we're going to see immigrants at the center of this. I think we are going to see trans people. Um, and so we have to just be ready and, and willing to counteract that um, with information. Call out, call it out for what it is. Um, this type of rhetoric is, 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 is obviously dehumanizing at its core, but it's also about setting the stage for major government encroachments into people's rights and autonomy that doesn't just ever stop at the group that's being targeted directly. Absolutely. As we close here, I want to just talk really quickly about Transanta. Obviously, we just had the the holiday season. I would love if you'd share a little bit about Transanta and and also potentially what else folks can do who are listening to support trans folks in the upcoming year. Yeah, well, Transanta is a project that uh, I founded with two of my friends in 2020, um, and it was a time when we started to see this uh, this very significant escalation of anti-trans rhetoric, and it was obviously in the first year of the pandemic, um, at a time when people were particularly isolated, and especially if you imagine trans young people at home who maybe had had outlets at school but no longer had those outlets because they were at home now much more. And so we wanted to come up with a way in which people could anonymously support trans young people. So um, it's, a w- it's a way for trans youth to publish 
wish uh, wish lists um, uh, through Instagram, and there's all, all, also a website that's on the trans uh, trans Santa on Instagram. You can go um, and 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 buy gifts for people that then get delivered to them. And the the transaction is such where you can just go buy a bunch of gifts, and you never have to actually you won't ever know where the person lives um, or any more identifying information, but you'll know about who they are a little bit and and what they desire and why. Um, and we felt like it was a way you know, almost like a, a joy redistribution with some material components as well um, and disrupt some of that isolation. And we've continued to grow the program and try to give um, more and more support and resources to trans youth and also to remind people that, um, you know, sometimes it's the smallest of in- interventions that can make the difference in, in someone's life and, and, and try to connect people to that sense that we have more to give than just, you know, money or we have more to give than just, um, you know, our time. That that's some way that we can think about how we can change the way we think about people in the world. So so Transana, um, you know, is something that people can donate to all year round. But during the holiday season, you can also just directly buy gifts for the trans young people who post their wish lists. Um, so go check it out um, on Instagram. And, and, and in general, I think there is a lot that we want people to do. And I would say going back to sort of the theme of this conversation, so much of this is going to play out in the cultural discourse. I would say first and foremost, my ask to everyone is stay vigilant. Stay vigilant about what you're consuming and check your reflexive uh, reaction to things. It's We have ingrained within all of us deeply embedded assumptions about so many things, and that includes trans people, especially. And and so being able to um, be a true accomplice in the fight for trans justice, the fight for gender justice, means checking your expectations and your assumptions as you're consuming information in the world. Um, and that is ultimately going to be, I think, the most critical piece in the fight um, in the next in the next few years is, is is changing the narrative, changing the reaction, making more space for people to uh, understand who they are, and 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 create the space for them to actualize them their identity, their embodiment, um, and their hopes and their sense of freedom. And, and so I think that's a project that all of us have to take on for ourselves and for and for others. Yeah, it's, it's internal work and external work. Chase, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's always awesome to talk to you. You're so brilliant and we're just so grateful to have you at the ACLU. Oh, thanks, Kendall. You too. I love having our conversations. Thanks for everything. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by folks at Ultraviolet Audio.